Hello and welcome to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and gracious. You know what? I'm not even going to do that over. Gracious. It just combines grateful and gracious. Saves me about two syllables. So thank you for uh, not tuning out so far in this killer of an opener. Um, I have been having an extraordinary amount of fun doing these things. Um, God, I'm doing like three interviews a week with like really, really great people. And that is the whole point for me is to make a connection with people because we have a pandemic of disconnection. I often say in this country, and I would like to see more connection. This is why I like to do these things. And I get to learn about so much stuff from so many amazing people. And uh, I'm grateful. It's also kind of fun for me because I do have a radio voice. I know that only because I've been told all my life, you should be a radio DJ. And I always, I thought about it for a bit. And then I realized that that would involve me being at an overnight graveyard shift in Omaha, Nebraska, doing some bad rock. Listen to Creed coming up now. I couldn't do it. Wasn't going to happen. But I kind of get to kind of get to do it here a little bit, kind of like Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati. If uh, any of you youngins should look that up, it's pretty good stuff. So, uh, as I had mentioned before, we are in multiple countries right now, which is crazy town to me. Thought only my mom would be listening, and perhaps some people I paid, but I guess that's not the case, and I am extremely grateful. So. Every once in a while, I will continue to do the international high-five section of the show. And what is that exactly? That is where I call out a country. And I give you some props. Give you some props. Tell you about some crazy things that you guys are doing, and I love it. So, as we always do on the show, we do also the national anthem of said country. And that country is Sweden, ladies and gentlemen. Sweden! Home of Ikea, but a lot more than that, which you will learn about. But first, the national anthem. Please rise. Or if you're driving, don't. Here we go. So majestic. Hand over hearts. And we're off. There we go. All right. Sweden, let's talk about some fun facts about you. What an interesting, interesting country. First of all, in most of the world, Mickey Mouse reigns supreme as Disney's most loved character, but in Sweden, ladies and gentlemen, Donald Duck is the man. Why? Because some people think that Donald's kind of flawed character is being re, uh, more relatable to Europeans than Mickey's virtuous perfection. So, but in addition to that, every Christmas Eve since 1959 at 3 p.m., the entire nation sits together to watch the Donald Duck and his friends wish you a Merry Christmas show. Unbelievable. Um, and then finally, I was in a band called Ludafisk. It's like noise, extremely loud band. And Ludafisk is the national dish of Sweden, and it's cod in lye. And it's horrible. <laughs> it's absolutely atrocious. But nevertheless, Sweden, we seem like good people. We seem like truly great people, I guess. I don't even know really how, that, how to define that. But nevertheless, you do have ABBA. That makes things perfect. And that... It's a cold end to this anthem because now I'm going to introduce the next guest interviewee, this guy named William Cohen. Oh, my goodness. So 
we've been doing uh, Hollywood people, and 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 now we're really kind of rounding out. And this particular guy, I cannot believe I got a chance to speak to this guy. So much fun. He is an investigative reporter, and he writes for the New York Times and the LA Times and the Washington Post and Atlantic and Forbes. Uh, about um, giant themes and uh, Trump, a lot of Trump he's written about since 2015. So we get into that a lot on this one. This is a good one. Um, also written th- uh, six books, uh, one in particular about his friend JFK Jr. and his loss and, and and both of their losses, actually. One of my favorite interviews so far, just because I get to get my Dick Cavett out. I don't do Dick Cavett a lot. I'm doing David Lee Roth. I'm doing WKRP in Cincinnati. I got a chance to do my Dick Cavett. How's that? All right. That's the end of that part. And here comes the smart guy. I'm leaving. (laughs) Bye. So hello, everyone, uh, to the Inspired Minds deal. Uh, Again, my name is Jeff Watson, and I have with me the talented Mr. William Cohen. Would you mind saying hello to the uh, audience, my friend? Hi, hi, Jeff. Hi, audience. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of stuff I want to ask you, uh, but I'd like to start off with the, uh, it's kind of like a standard question I do at the beginning of these things, which is simply, what was the first thing that inspired you, that moved you when you were a kid? Movie, book, person, show, anything. It inspired me to to write. do something perhaps. or to... Yeah, perhaps, yeah, to write, perhaps, let's say. Well, uh, you know, I was not, not inspired uh, to write uh, ever. I remember for a long time, not till I got into my 40s, uh, was I inspired, well, maybe a little bit in college, but, uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I had an English teacher who... Uh, wrote on my uh, uh, you know, trimester report that uh, this guy, uh, you know, me, can't write, shouldn't even ever think about writing, is a terrible writer, and, uh, you know, just try something else would be my advice. Um, so I, I didn't do much writing. Uh, in, in college, I was the uh, editor of an alternative magazine, um, where I did do some writing, but uh, th- then uh, I decided that, you know, I was a, kind of a child of the uh, Watergate era and Woodward and Bernstein and sure. journalists who can change the world uh, through their work. And I thought, wow, that's, that's literally what I want to do. Um, and so uh, I thought, well, I'll be a journalist, um, uh, after college, uh, I ended up uh, getting a job in a paper in far upstate New York. I, of course, thought I should just immediately go to the New York Times or the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Uh, but, uh, you know, then reality kicked in and I got a job as the editor of a small paper near the Canadian border in upstate New York. That was a shocking uh, a development. And then after about a year of that, I went to Columbia Journalism School um, and, uh, once again, thinking, well, if I had gone to Columbia journalism school, I should immediately go to the New York times or the wall street journal. Once again, that didn't happen. I ended up back, uh, in North Carolina in, in Raleigh where I covered uh, public, uh, the Raleigh times, which was the afternoon paper of the Raleigh news and observer. 
and I did that for two years. And, um, you know, during this whole time, my father was thinking, you know, you're crazy. I mean, I think I was, uh, when I was, uh, uh, in upstate New York, I was making like $9,000 a year. And then when I was in Raleigh, I was making $13,000 a year. Uh, and I think my father thought I was insane. He, um, uh, really urged me to go to business school. Now, I didn't want to go to business school, but because uh, I really wanted a job at the Wall Street Journal, and they would never hire me. I kept trying and trying; they would never hire me. And uh, I thought, well, if I also got a business an MBA to go with my journalism degree, then the Wall Street Journal would have to hire me. Hmm. So uh, I went to Columbia to get my MBA, and once again, I was frustrated. Uh, they would, still would not hire me. So uh, that was that. At that moment, I thought, okay, look, enough, enough of this journalism stuff. Uh, I will go uh, into finance. I'll go to Wall Street, and so that's what I did for uh, seventeen years. And then, um, so now I'm forty-four years old. I have two young kids, and. Uh, this happens to many people on Wall Street when they get to be a certain age, uh, especially after sort of cataclysmic events. So after 9-11, you know, uh, all the calculus related to what uh, the folks at J.P. Morgan Chase could do, uh, you know, uh, for annual revenue went out the window. And so then they started firing people. And so I got fired in January 2004 and decided that, uh, you know, the only thing I could do uh, or, the, you know, uh, that I wanted to do was to try to write uh, a book. Now, I hadn't written anything in 20 plus years, hmm. but I decided that uh, I'm going to try to write a book about Lazard, which was the bank that I worked at um, uh, soon after business school. I was there for six years and uh, it was like a fascinating place and there really hadn't been uh, anything written about it in a long time. And so I had this crazy idea that I could do this and I wrote a proposal and the double day bought it and, you know, I wrote it and it, you know, it that came out in 2007. It was named the best business book in the world of that year by the FT wow. financial times and Goldman Sachs. So that was it. That was um, uh, that was sort of how that all began. What's interesting too is that you seem to have kind of melded both of your passions, or at least your your your, your interests, in the sort of early investigative reporting, uh, and then your Wall Street world. And it, it seems you kind of melded them together. Now, yeah, there's no question that um, I was sort of trained as an investigative journalist. Now, some people say, you know, all journalists should be investigative journalists, you know, mm. but I was, that was sort of really drummed into me, uh, you know, the old idea of, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, uh, you know, when I was in Raleigh, I wrote a bunch of stories that got the local school superintendent fired and I won a investigative reporting award in the state. And then the next year I wrote another story then I won another award. So I was really keen, you know, like, like Woodward and Bernstein, even though in my 
little way I was doing, you know, something a lot more low key. Um, but you know, that was sort of the way I approached it. And, um, you know, after, you know, 17 years on wall street, you know, and really learning the language of wall street and, you know, wall street can be a very, as you said, I mean, it could be a very intimidating place. Uh, people don't know much about it. You know, either you do or you don't, that's the kind of thing. Either you're right. in that world or you're not. And if you're not, it's like a foreign language. And so I see my view, my purpose is to sort of like bridge the gap uh, make a bridge between the people who, for whom it's like an impossible world to penetrate and those people who are in that world and sort of take it all for granted. And my job is to sort of explain what goes on in that world uh, to those people. But I've also tried not to get pigeonholed as just a Wall Street writer. And so I've written a few other things, lots of other things that have nothing to do with Wall Street. Yep. Which I want to get into. There's actually one, excuse me, there's one book specifically that I really do want to get into uh, in a bit. But, you know, you had mentioned that, uh, I mean, you've written six books, I believe, so far, correct? And they've been. Uh, yes, I, mean, I just finished my seventh. So, oh, what's the seventh? Published in November. It's called uh, Power Failure The Rise and Fall of an, American, of an American Icon, which is about the rise and fall of GE. Oh, with Jack Welch. Jack Welch, Jeff Immoltz, yes. How it went from being the most valuable and most respected company in the world to nearly the dustbin of history. You know, something just popped in my mind. It's Is Upton Sinclair kind of a, a fair comparison, perhaps, just in the investigative part? If you want to compare me to Upton Sinclair, I will be happy to. I'm working to, on that. <laughs> to, to take that. Thank you. That's where I'm heading with this. But, you know, his, his, uh, his famous expose of the meat industry. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's, would you say, is it safe to say that he would kind of like the founding father of investigative reporting? I think uh, uh, Upton Sinclair and uh, Ida Tarbell as well, who of course I think wrote an expose of Standard Oil. Uh, She also wrote a biography about one of the early uh, CEOs of GE, a guy named Owen Young, Hmm. which was a, you know, fascinating book. He was a fascinating guy. Um, and so, yeah, I would say those two, probably I'm glad there was like a, a woman in, in as one of them. Sure. And, uh, Nellie Bly also might be a, a corollary now. Yeah. I don't know her work quite as much, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her, her famous thing, I believe is that, uh, she was writing for the, uh, times of the, yeah, it was the times and, uh, she did an expose on the mental health industry. So she pretended to be. Uh, uh, quote unquote crazy, and went into a uh, mental health hospital back in like the twenties, I think it was, and did a massive expose on it. Um, wow! Yeah, it, it's actually the interesting thing is she wanted out at some point. She kind of pulled a ripcord and uh, tried to get out and said, "Hey, I'm not crazy. This is all for a thing." And they said, "You are crazy." So they kept yeah. her in for quite some time. Jesus! Yeah, it was awful. And it just you should. We could look around for her. Fantastic story. She ended up marrying an incredibly wealthy man and actually ran his business. It was like a really big business. She ended up running that until her death. Um, but kind of the progenitor also, I think, of a lot of this stuff. Um, so my my next question is, so, you know, you've, you've written at this point seven books. Uh, you know, you've written for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Washington Post, L.A. Times, New Yorker, Atlantic. Um, you've got Puck News. Um so I guess the question is, when do you not write? 
<laughs> What's your process there? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's my, it's my job, you know? So, um, you know, it's, it's what I do. I mean, when I was a banker, uh, that was my job and I worked, of uh, you know, very long hours as a banker. So I sort of used to that. And, um, uh, the difference here is that I, you know, set my own schedule and I'm my own boss as opposed to when I was a banker, I was always being told by some irrational, uh, senior person, uh, you know, where to be and when to be. And, you know, you know, we don't like what you did and tearing it all up and starting it over again. So, you know, frankly, uh, you know, this allows me to own, uh, much of my own equity uh, in these projects and nobody really can tell me what to do and when to do it. And so um, there's a lot of incredible uh, freedom in that. I just have to um, put your butt in the seat uh, every day. And, you know, that's, that's what I do. I mean, I have some deadlines like for Puck, uh, I have deadlines or if I write, you know, a piece for the Financial Times or, or 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 some other publication. I have you know a deadline, and that helps you focus and helps get you get things done. And then there's the books, which obviously are much longer projects, but you know, you know, you have to you have to get them done. You know, you know, it's it's lonely, it's hard. You know, no one to help you. Uh, no one to no, you can't. No one's going to write it for you. No one's going to research it for you. No one's going to report it for you. Um, no one's going to organize it for you. It is, it's, you know, it's very, 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 very hard work. Um, but you know, once it comes out, you know, uh, it's, you know, very satisfying at least for a few moments until there's a bad review. And then you say to yourself, huh, I just spent three years of my life on this thing, gave it my all. And now this New York times review, you know, makes it all sort of like disappear in, in a minute. Because, you know, once there's a bad review in the New York Times or something, you know, no one's going to buy it. It's interesting. So it's a very strange thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I never really thought about that. But you're, uh, I can understand now that having like the, something like the Times or the Post or whomever it may be, they do hold an incredible amount of power when it comes to those things. Yes. I mean, it's slightly, you know, there's so many different outlets now uh, where, you know, you, you can get exposure for a book if you're lucky, you know, between you know TV and all, all sorts of online publications. But, you know, the Times really, uh, at the end of the day, you know, is the one that still makes a tremendous amount of difference. Uh, you know, it can certainly help. I mean, I've had great Times reviews that were incredibly helpful, and I've had terrible time reviews, which I thought were completely unfair and that, you know, wrecked, you know, wrecked the book's prospects. So, you know, there's this probably, you know, a few days, maybe a week between the time that a book gets published and the reviews start coming. Sometimes it's a day, you know, sometimes they review it the the day the book comes out. So you can literally, if it's not a good review, you can just, just, you can just watch the whole thing go down the tubes right in front of your eyes. Wow. After, after two to three years worth of work. How do you handle the, uh, maybe the word is fear of opening up that New York times paper and seeing what the review is. You know, I think that's where, uh, a, a uh, you know, the ability to kind of say, okay, fine. This is just one person's view. 
Uh, I don't agree with it, but you know, that's just the way it goes. You know, you're in the arena, man. You know, you've got to, uh, you know, you know, you put yourself out there, you, you write this thing and, you know, you're putting yourself out there to open yourself up to criticism. And, uh, obviously, you know, any kind of slight makes the writer feel horrible, but you know, uh, somebody reading the review might not notice that slide or realize it or might say, Hey, I want to read this anyway, but you know, either they, they do or they don't. There's nothing you can do. Right. Acceptance basically. Yeah. Yeah. What can you do? Right. Yeah. Except the things you can and cannot change. And right. Exactly. Yeah. I know what that is. Yeah. Um, I got to say this actually, you know, and I mentioned earlier, uh, when we were kind of doing the pre-deal here, I don't know anything about finance, so forgive me if I'm wasting your time. But I do try and look at these things from a, um, like I said, like an inspiration uh, and a psychological kind of lens sometimes. And I, but I gotta say this out of the gate: your language, your use of language, is absolutely fantastic. And I gotta say this: I found this title that you wrote, um, a headline for uh, Art News in 2011, and it's a chef's kiss. It's so good because it says MoMA's problematic province. I was knocked out by that phrase. It's just the twist of the language is, is, is so beautiful to see when that happens. Um, and, and that's what was a really important story that, you know, kind of died on the vine. It, um, cataloged in great detail, all the stolen art that the museum of modern art has in its collection. Huh? art that was stolen from Jewish families during World War II by the Nazis and right. not not returned to them. And if you actually study the provenances, which they pretend to uh, online ha- you know, have a full picture of, you, you know, you realize that there was must be like close to 50 paintings or artworks at the MoMA that, that are stolen, clearly stolen. And, you know, I tried to uh, illuminate this and write about it uh and nothing happened nothing happened nothing changed they -hmm. still have these works in their collection um you know i would have thought that a lot of the board members would be up in arms because a lot of the board members are are jewish and i thought you know they would be up in arms uh about this but no they didn't care nobody cared nothing's changed my goodness it, it, in a in a strange way, it's not surprising for me. No, of course not. It's, it's part of you know human nature. You know, if you start raising a stink, you know, I, I, I'm the you know the skunk bomb at the party. <laughs> you know, m- mentioning these things. If you're on the board, and you say, well, "What's going on with this?" You know, you know. The next thing you know, you're going to be off the board. They don't want uh, people to uh, make make a stink uh, on boards. Of course. Yeah, because that affects your bottom line, and yeah, and, and it, it gives a... Oh, it just it disturbs the peace. It taints it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it taints the whole thing. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into here. Uh, so you've been, I've been noticed even following Trump for a long time, or at least quite some time mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. Uh, before the election. Um, before I get yes. into too much about this, because I do have some questions there, but it's interesting, you know, I was reading this thing, <laughs> I forgot that he called himself the Ernest Hemingway of Twitter. He's he's probably the most delusional human being uh, that we've had the pleasure to know as our, uh, unfortunately, as our president and as, uh, you know, a a New York City uh, real estate 
uh, businessman. He's completely and totally delusional and remains so to this day. Absolutely. You know, it, it's funny, too, because when I when I remembered uh, this were <laughs> uncover this buried memory of, from trauma about him, you know, saying that Ernest Hemingway thing. And there were so many fucking crazy things that this guy did that, you know, continues to do that. People just like myself, I watch this stuff very closely. And even I forget these tiny little things because there's so many of them going on that they just got buried and buried and buried over these layers. Yeah, I think that's uh, normal. Look, I'm a student of human nature, right? And I I think that that's just part of the human psyche. You would know better than I, but I just think, um, uh, you know, people can only take so much. They can only remember so much. They can only catalog so much. They can only, uh, they can only remember so much. And it just sort of becomes a big blur. But, you know, we do know that he, he you know, uh, was the most delusional out of control, uh, unqualified, inappropriate, disastrous uh, president in in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the republic. Um, and yet here he is, uh, you know, uh, potentially, you know, poised to make a comeback, uh, which is absolutely uh, un- un- unbelievable to me. Uh, but, you know, we live in a very strange time. We do. You know, I had a, I had a friend of a friend of mine who uh, was around in Venezuela and he had a really terrifying quote, which was fascism comes at you faster than you think. Mm. And yeah, it, it's absolutely true, you know? And, you know, from a psychological standpoint, have you ever heard of the dark triad at all? No, I don't, I don't believe I had dark triad. The trilateral commission. No, 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 exactly. The dark triad is a psychological concept that is pretty rare. And it's simply this. It's um, psychopathy, it's uh, narcissism, and it's Machiavellianism, right? That, you know, I'll fuck you before you fuck me kind of thing. I just, just that schadenfreude of I'm going to destroy you for my own pleasure. That's the Machiavellian part. The psychopathy part, obviously, is, you know, what that is. And then the narcissism. All of those three components are usually found in, wait for it, dictators or cult leaders. That is terrifying to me. And, you know, you had written, I, I did kind of want to want to talk about this, too. You know, there was a kind of a dust up, apparently, over your uh, piece. And I believe it was Vanity Fair over insider training and his knowledge of. Yep. Right. Um, and you, you wrote this. And I thought this was interesting, too, because this is also my fear that essentially if the consequences for him uh, Vance obviously didn't do much, but Bragg, who knows what's going to happen. But the consequences of him being possibly indicted and then not getting a conviction are horrendous because he will be a martyr. Well, it, it doesn't it doesn't look like he's going to be indicted because it looks like uh, Alvin Bragg. I just wrote a piece about this last week for Puck. Uh, is has dropped the case, even though he says it's quote unquote ongoing. But in fact, the matter is he disbanded the grand jury that was investigating. Uh, whether or not he committed crimes. And so if you disband the grand jury or, you know, tell it to go to sleep, uh, you know, you're obviously not pursuing uh, the, the investigation. You're not you're not marching down the path towards an indictment. So he, you know, once again, slipped slipped away, just like he did in two, not one, you know, but but two impeachments, uh you know, he slithered away from this criminal investigation. There's still a civil investigation at the New York state level. There's obviously what's going on with the 
January 6th commission. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if there's a change of control in the House in November, you know, and they haven't finished their work by then, then that quickly will, will end, too. I mean, the guy is un- unbelievably uh, slithery uh, and has gotten away with uh, crimes for his whole life. And, uh, you know, even Berlusconi, uh, who, you know, is who Trump reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, did spend time in jail or at least did, did get prosecuted. Um, Trump just, it's, it's astounding. And that, that he could possibly have sway uh, over his party and um, uh, that the Republican senators and House members, uh, you know, and other Republicans like genuflect towards him still and, if you just look at this Pennsylvania Senate race where he endorsed Dr. Oz and that's yeah. a big deal. I mean, it's so pathetic. Uh, I, I honestly don't know how anybody cannot see through this guy. It's so obvious. It is to 80 million people. But, you know, from no. back on the psychology thing, this is a mass psychosis in my clearly in my mm. opinion. And what's interesting, I will say this about mass psychoses, is that they're extremely rare, apparently. Um, a great example mm-hmm. of them, I, I learned about one that was really interesting back in the 60s. It was an African tribe who just laughed nonstop. Every single person in the village just couldn't stop laughing for, like, weeks. Mm-hmm. And what's even more interesting is that when uh, a couple of times there was a, a member, a tribe member, that would go to another tribe, they would start laughing mm-hmm. when this guy laughed. And I think it traveled to like one more city or village and everyone would just started laughing. It was like the eye of the Fatima back in 19, I think it was 12 back in Mexico. That was another example uh, where uh, like thousands of people thought Mother Mary appeared in the, in the sky. And, you know, who knows, but it's that kind of psychosis that I think has taken over America. No question. Young Carl Jung talked about this like a hundred years ago. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not naive enough to know that it doesn't happen. It clearly does happen, and it can happen here. But of all people to become in the thrall of this pathetic slob of a human being who was, you know, a terrible uh, businessman yeah. and uh, just what do people see in him? I just can't figure it out. He's completely inarticulate. He stands for nothing. He, he's a buffoon. He's grotesque. This I, is who we've rallied behind. 72 million people. I don't just, I'm, I'm, you know, a liar extraordinaire, obviously. Clearly. Totally delusional. How can, how can it be? I just don't understand it. You know, it, it's hard to explain cult behavior, right? I mean, people need Guyana. I mean, this is, this is completely parallel to, uh, to Guyana, uh, if you ask me. It's just that same mentality of, like, that cult of personality that Stalin had and a lot of other cult leaders and political leaders have. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, it obviously happens. We hope and pray it doesn't happen in this country, but it obviously did, and it continues. I, I will say this one thing. I, I don't know if you've heard people say we haven't been this divided since the Civil War. Yeah, sure. I've, I've heard I, that. I, I kind of believe that. I kind of don't, actually, and here's my little theory. Mm, okay, good. Um, and that is, because I was thinking about this like a month ago, I thought, how did a farmer know about the war in Iowa when it was going on, right? Newspapers. But they didn't have that kind of a circulation back then. So I looked at the circulation in 65, uh, uh, and it was 450,000. 
right? Total combined newspapers. And that was in like Atlanta, New York, and the hotspots. And then it hit me, wait, 450,000 compared to 330 million people who have access to the internet. I completely posited that we are far more divided simply by that nature. Okay. But are we going to, we going to head towards civil war? Nah, I, my theory is it's going to be what the IRA did uh, in England back in the late seventies. I I don't know. I don't know where this is going. That's, I guess Mm. that's the point. No one, no one necessarily does. Um, but to get off that topic, I do want to, this is the one I really want to talk about, quite frankly, um, because you can, you can clearly find a story. I know that. You can, you can write one, rather. Um, like, how do you find it? Like, is the story out there, or, and do you just catch it? Or what's your, how do you get the story, I guess? How do you find it? Well, uh, I think you just, you know, a book is a long, you're talking about a book, a book is a long project it's a big project so you know everybody kind of knows what a book is like or you know what a book has to tackle so you know uh some you know presented themselves uh like the book about bear stearns and the collapse of bear stearns well that presented itself like you know there's a dead body on the ground how did it get there right um the books about Lazard and Goldman Sachs, there's like, okay, what are these? Let's pull back the curtain on these firms, these, you know, relatively secretive firms. And, uh, you know, let's really dig in and investigate what they're all about and share that with people. Uh, you know, the Duke lacrosse case, there was a, you know, a scandal that occurred and you just sort of start at the beginning and figure out what had happened and why. Um, and in that case had been, so much disinformation that, you know, I felt very strongly that I needed to, um, you know, really expose what, what actually happened. Um, you know, the book about my four friends from high school, I mean, you know, each one of them died young and tragically. So I decided that's sort of like a curious thing. Um, you know, this will be sort of like a, an homage to them and uh, also an investigative reporting challenge because, you know, except for JFK Jr., there wasn't a lot of information out there about these other people. So I had to talk to their friends, some of whom were my friends or their widows or their girlfriends, you know, so it was a real challenge. So that was good. I mean, in the GE uh, story, there's a situation where once again, there's a dead body on the ground or a, a body on life support. How did this company that was once, you know, sort of the Google... Uh, Apple and Microsoft kind of rolled into one become like an afterthought. Yeah. How'd that happen? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there are sort of big uh, macro uh, questions that, you know, one tries to answer when one uh, embarks on something of this magnitude and of this nature. And, you know, your job is to try to, um, uh, to, 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 to answer them and, and to do it in a, a way that uh, people will want to read and they'll find entertaining. Uh, you know, I love reading books that are sort of about these topics. So uh, I try to do, to write the kinds of things that I like to read myself. Right. And that makes perfect sense. I do want to go actually into the four friends thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Um as I, cause I think, as I mentioned in the uh, intro here before you and I were, before we recorded, um, this whole podcast is ultimately about storytelling. 
because I believe that you can divine meaning out of storytelling, I think is the easiest way to find meaning, um, you know, for the, for the person that reads it or interprets it. And it's incredibly important. I think it's a lattice work for connection in this country because we are in a pandemic of that shit right now, a disconnection. And it's the storytelling. I think that, you know, really kind of is that, is that tissue that connects us all. So as it relates specifically to four friends, um, I'm a grief specialist in my work. Um, I've, I've experienced unimaginably psychotic grief myself. So I'm fascinated by this idea of telling the stories about uh, your friends. Uh, and, and last thing I'll say about that is I, I believe that that's a way to animate the dead is through the storytelling. So would you mind kind of going through and walking what that was like and in, in the interview process with the widows and the friends and kind of experiencing that secondary grief? Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. I mean, the, the 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 thought that actually I could do it and that it would work. Uh, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, you know, why why should a, a widow of somebody of my of somebody I knew, you know, forty years earlier, uh, thirty five years earlier, you know, talk to me about their most these sort of intimate and personal experience related to their spouse. I mean, it was, um, I, I, you know, once again, I thank the people who had, you know, the willingness and the courage to talk to me about their friends, just like I think, you know, repeatedly all the sources for all of my books, because obviously without them, uh, you know, I really couldn't, couldn't do what I do because I do sort of a combination of oral history and documentary history and make it narrative you know, I wouldn't even consider myself a historian, but I, you know, I do uh, rely on a lot of interviews and a lot of documentary evidence and then trying to write a story that'll be interesting. So, you know, he, here in this case, you know, except for JFK Jr., I mean, who, of course, was like one of the most famous people uh, in the history of the world. Uh, so there was plenty available about him and he was my friend. And so I knew him and I knew people who knew him. But, you know, he, of course, no surprise, you know, I didn't get uh, uh, any cooperation from people in, you know, in his family, uh, uh-huh. but that didn't matter to me. Um, but the other three, you know, it was real, uh, a challenge, incredible challenge of finding out who the family members were and getting them to talk to me and, uh, you know, reliving that pain, you know, cause the, the deaths were like, you know, largely 20 years before, you know, so the good news is that, that, you know, there's enough time that had passed that they could reflect or they'd moved on mm-hmm. uh, in, in many cases. And, and they were willing to talk about it because it wasn't sort of immediate and the pain had been, you know, ameliorated to some extent. So uh, yeah, that was very fortunate and it was incredible. They agreed to talk to me and uh, I'm very thankful for that. And I thought it would be a way for me to remember uh you know, these people I'd gone to high school with and what happened to them uh, in these, you know, tragic circumstances. Um, you know, we're not talking about sickness here. We're talking about crazy things that happened to them. Um, and, you know, people who I'd lost touch with after high school because back then, you know, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't any of these social media things that you can really use to keep in touch with people. You sort of lost touch and that was pretty much it. That's true. Uh, 
What did you learn from that experience? Well, you know, uh, on the on the one hand, like sort of on a micro level, I learned a lot about my friends that I didn't know. So that was sort of interesting. Uh, you know, on a bigger picture macro level, I, you know, I learned the usual things that I've known for a, a long time that, you know, the existential nature of life, the, the you know, fact that we're just here for, you know, a brief period, uh, you know, who knows, you know, you know, in each of these cases, they woke up one morning and thought they were living their normal life. And the next thing you knew, it was their last day. So, you know, that can, that could happen to that could happen to anybody. And so, you know, now people always say, well, then you should live each day as if it were your last. Well, okay. Well, if you were to do that, you'd be sort of eating, or I would be eating like macaroni and cheese all day, <laughs> you, you know? Uh, so uh, I think that, you know, that's a nice sort of ideal. So, I mean, I learned about like the different, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of like the ideal, like the existential philosophers talk about these ideals. And then, you know, it's kind of like the reality of how you have to live your life, which is, um, or, you know, one tries to live one's life, which is, you know, doing meaningful work, you know, getting paid enough to pay the bills and, you know, live your life. But, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen one day to the next. It's 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 like a pachinko game. I often say, you know, you know those pachinko games they have over yep. in Asia. Yeah, I mean, there is skill to life, obviously, but those things is so. It's a perfect example of chaos and randomity because there's you don't there's no flippers or anything. If I'm not mistaken, you just put balls in the in the top, and it kind of all goes mm-hmm. down. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can put yourself in risky situations. A couple of these people did, but you can just be living your life, and something happens that, you know, you can't, you're not responsible for, and you had no reason to anticipate whatever happened. Um, I thought that was sort of a nice way to not only remember my friends and honor my friend's memory, but also explore those kinds of issues. Sure. Well, you know, there's an example, by the way, of, of a book that got a terrible review in the New York Times. That was kind of the end of it. Really? Yeah. Well, at least unfair, totally unfair. Totally, un- I, I'm sure it was. Totally undeserved. But I mean, every author would say that. But I mean, you know, it was written by somebody who shouldn't have been assigned it, who had her own axe to grind about, you know, preppies or whatever. Oh, God. That's what, ha- you know, that's what happens. I, I was just simply going to say that JFK Jr. is going to come back any time now. So, you know, run for president. Apparently it's Trump's running mate, <laughs> I gather. People are fucking insane. Holy shit. Totally. Um so uh, just a couple more things, I guess. Um, oh, first of all, I do want to talk about Trump for one more second. The guy mm-hmm. never had a dog. I mean, I mean, that's like of all the things to criticize him about, it's like lowest on the totem pole. But it says so much to me as a dog lover. Mm. But no socks to cat, apparently. Um, so I guess the last thing. That's, I- the, that's the least of his egregious behaviors. Like I said. Like literally the bottom of the totem pole. Mm. <laughs> Unbelievable. There's no bottom for any of these people. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is I'm sure you know that, you know, fear travels faster than the truth. And that's biological because that's the amygdala. It's just that flight, flight or freeze thing that travels quickly because it's supposed to biologically. And the prefrontal cortex, where all the rational thought is, that's truth. And that takes a second or if not a lot longer to process. It takes time for truth to come out, to be understood. 
And in this world of just constant information and constant stimulus, it's that amygdala that just travels everywhere so quickly. I mean, I've never understood if, you know, if, if Trump just, you know, has, quote, figured this all out and he does this because it's expedient and it's, you know, can get him elected or whether he's just sort of does this as part of uh, his psyche and uh, who he is. And, you know, it just happens to work out for him. Yeah. He's never been, he's never been like none of his kids have ever been punched in the face. I got a feeling. And not that I'm you know, necessarily advocating that per se. Um, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I said Mike Tyson. That's right. My favorite quote ever. <laughs> uh, glad you brought that up, actually. That's the first Mike Tyson reference on this podcast. Well done. Yeah, there you go. Um, so the last thing I always try and ask here is uh, kind of another standard question. I basically just have two questions beginning in middle or end. And that is when you're writing, when do you know you're done? When do you know you're you're hit send? You're good to go. Well, again, I'm a I'm a nonfiction writer, correct? Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a journalist, so of course, you know, you, you you know you're at the end when the story is at the end. You know, when when you've sort of arrived at the destination that you were trying to get to when you started. Like, what happened to to Bearsters? Why? Did it disappear in a week or, you know, I mean, you know, with uh, sort of a history of, of, of firms like Lazard or Bear Stearns or, or Goldman Sachs, then, you know, it's quite clear, you know, you sort of bring it up to the present. Same with GE. You, know, you start at 1892 and you bring it up to the present. But, you know, the present is not really relevant in that case because, you know, it's sort of what happened preceding it. Um you know, with four friends, you know that you've written their stories, their stories of their deaths. Uh, that's it. Or with the, the Duke book, you know that, you know, you've gotten to the end of the story. Mm. So um, it's like, you know, you know it when you see it. You just know it. You're exhausted. You're, you know, you you know that you can't write anymore. You know that you shouldn't write anymore. You know that no editor wants anymore. Right. Uh, you know that if you do write anymore, it'll just get cut anyway. So you just say, okay, that's enough. It. That's it. Yeah. You feel it. Enough. Bad. Yeah. And like, exactly. I, and I didn't think about that nonfiction thing. You're right. Cause you already, you already have an end goal. Yeah. But even when you're starting, you know, you're trying to answer a question, right. dead body on the floor. How did it get there? Right. You know, so, so, you know, you, you, you have, uh, uh, you know, you have a goal in mind. I don't know how fiction writers end a book or even how they write a book. I don't know how you make things up. I don't know how you make a whole world up, but people obviously do. Sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, um, God, I love these things. Cause I always say this too, William, I get to be the eternal student whenever I do these things. So, uh, thank That's you. for great. I love it. I, I just, you know, like I said, as a therapist too, all I do is listen to stories all day and ask Socratic questions. So this is kind of that, I guess. Just well, I hope you get something from it. Uh, I hope your listeners get something from it. Hey everybody, Mr. Michael or William Cohen. Thank you so much for joining the show. I had a lovely time. Please say goodbye, Mr. William Cohen. Goodbye, everybody out there in podcast land. Podcast land. All right. This has been a hoot as usual. Uh, thanks. I'm going to, uh, yeah, I think we're done. 
Goodbye.